0: at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, price and coverage match, limited by state law. I remember when I was younger, in a line guaranteed to get last at the party with your friends, someone would accidentally tee you up. They'd say something like, What's the truth about this? Uh, Who knows the truth of what happened? That was your cue. You just go, the truth? You can't handle the truth. And you get big guffaws every single time. I've said it myself. And a little while ago, I'm watching the film this line comes from. A few good men. Tom Cruise plays a military lawyer. Jack Nicholson, he's on the stand being righteously badgered for information when he explodes with the big line. The truth? You can't handle the truth. Boom! Then he says something else, too. He says, Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. You don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about in parties, you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. And hearing him now, it hits different than when I was a kid goofing around. Maybe because I'm older, maybe because this is a different age, or maybe because now I know some of those guys on those walls with those guns, doing things in our names that we pretend we can't see so we can live in a happy fiction. I'm concerned about where our things come from, our food, our water, our clothes, our phones, our land. It makes you wonder, what do lies cost? Today in Snap Judgment, we proudly present Map to the Disappeared. My name is from Washington. You can handle the truth. When you're listening To Snap We begin In Veracruz, Mexico Follow one woman As she follows a map And since listeners should know this is a real story that includes graphic depictions of corpses and grave sites and a brief description of torture. It's a search to solve a mystery that has haunted this woman for years. Step Judgment.
1: Did he ever
2: tell you that he had a dangerous job?
3: One day he said to me, Mom,
1: If they ever
3: kidnap me and ask you for money, don't give them anything,
2: because they won't bring me back alive. One morning in April 2013, on the side of a busy road, Griselda Brada's son, Pedro, was abducted at gunpoint by the police. These were men Pedro had worked with for years, but now they were shooting at his truck. They put a blindfold over his eyes and forced him and his secretary into their vehicle and drove off. All that Griselda was left with were questions.
1: First I
3: wondered, where are you? Are you okay? Are you with the people who took you and are they torturing you? Did they throw you in acid? Did they you in the middle of the ocean, I've heard that they even have animals, that they have a lion and that they throw people to the lion.
2: Griselda's son was an investigator for the state of Veracruz, a place where the police, the politicians, and the cartels worked hand in hand. Right before this happened, Pedro had taken on some of the biggest cases to expose local corruption.
1: I
3: was in denial for a long time. I was like, this can't be. My son has to come back. We were supposed to have coffee together. But little by little, I started realizing what was really happening that it was something much bigger.
1: Pedro was missing. And Griselda
2: was alone in her search for him. After all, who do you go to for help when the police are the kidnappers? Well,
3: I didn't know what to do.
2: At first, Griselda
1: told herself stories. That he
3: was alive or that he'd call me at any moment, that he hadn't called me because he couldn't. But that he was working, because he's very smart. That those people took him so that he would work for them. That's what I told myself in my head.
1: And for a long time, that's how I
3: kept myself going, waiting for him. Some people would tell me, put his shoes out because he'll come back. So I would put his shoes outside the door.
2: But after several months, when her son still hadn't walked through that door, Griselda decided to go to the prosecutor's office. She
3: was determined to find him. I went many times. On my own, I got nothing. They said they were doing everything possible and that if they found out anything, they would let me know, but nothing. I don't know. She
2: had just one clue to go by. One day at the prosecutor's office, Griselda was handed the confession from a man who was detained in connection to the case. Known as El Cocho or The Pig, he had been hired to spy on Pedro and report his whereabouts back to the cartel, In his statement, he said his boss told him they'd killed Pedro and tossed him by some lagoons.
3: I couldn't keep reading. I couldn't. No, No, I couldn't keep reading.
1: But she kept showing
2: up at the prosecutor's office, always dressed in a nice blouse, her hair pinned in a neat bun. She'd also attend the regular meetings the prosecutor held for the dozens of families
3: searching for their missing loved ones. In the meetings is when I first started running into Lucy.
4: That meeting was one of these meetings that we have, you know, like endless meetings and they go nowhere. Lucy Diaz was also looking for her son, Luis, who had been abducted not long after Pedro. And she was there. And I remember that, you know, how she is so quiet and and composed that evening, Griselda stood up and, in front of everyone, spoke directly to the attorney general. She said, "Like you don't even look for your own. You don't even make an effort to, to find them. You saw her shaking, so nervous, and uh, and, and she was crying. You know. And, and then all of a sudden, she said that. It was it was a shock. So that 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 made me aware of her. After that, I told her, look." If there's anything I can do to help you, she, she came back to me and she asked me if, I, if she could join the group, and I said, yeah, why not?
2: The group called themselves Los Solicitos, which means little sons, because they were a light in what was otherwise a dark situation. In the beginning, the women held demonstrations and met with officials, anything to bring attention to the disappeared and to pressure the authorities to investigate
3: to hear everyone's story my mental health started to improve I lightened up a little and I thought it's not just me a lot of us are going through the same thing and thank God that I found them so that's where our sisterhood started because it's like another family I said we're going to find him
1: We're going to find him, God willing. Two years went by, and while the
2: group grew to over 200 members, not a single victim had been found. And then came Mother's Day, 2016. Hundreds of solecitos descended upon the plaza in Veracruz, and were getting ready to march through downtown.
3: Look. That day, all the mothers met up. Mrs. Lucy had us meet up to do a march. We wanted them to see that we didn't have anything to celebrate. Because how is a mother supposed to celebrate this day? Or how can you be happy on this day without your son? We all wore a white T-shirt with a photo of our child. We were all there we had begun a prayer for our children and i was praying begging god to find my son someone came up to me with a folded paper like the size of a card and so i just took it i looked up and all i saw was a young guy with a baseball cap and a t-shirt but nothing special and i saw that there was another person on the other side passing out these papers to
2: Other people who were there that day saw two men drive up alongside the crowd in a pickup truck. They got out and said something like, here, take this, as they passed out several pieces of folded paper.
3: Actually, I opened it a little and I saw like a map. There were some streets and I thought it was where we were going to walk for the march. I folded it back up and put it in my bag. I don't think any of the women thought anything of it. They caught us in the moment where we were emotional during the prayer. We went to the march, we came back, And no one said
1: anything.
2: It was only later, when she'd returned home, that Griselda remembered the piece of folded paper in her
3: purse. And I was curious to see the map. I opened it, and well, that's when I realized that it wasn't just any map. At the top, there were a bunch of little crosses. That was the first thing I saw and it said
1: bodies.
0: Snap us. When we return, we follow that map, wherever it may lead. Snap judgment. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash snap. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash snap. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the map to the disappeared episode. When last we left, Griselda had just discovered that what she held in her hand was no ordinary map. Again, this is a real story with real people and real events. And sensitive listeners should know it includes graphic depictions of corpses and grave sites and a brief description of torture. Now Griselda and the other Solicitos move to find what's buried beneath the dozens of small X's. Snap Judgment.
2: drawn in black ink on white Xerox paper. The map was a crude illustration of streets and train tracks that pointed to a plot of land covered in dozens of small Xs.
3: So then I started looking at it closely, and I noticed that on the bottom it said, here is where you are going to find your children. The people responsible for your children being here are from the cartel. And then it said, C-G-N. C-G-N. Around here, that means the Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación.
2: Griselda had heard of families receiving anonymous phone calls, giving them the location of a secret grave. But she'd never heard of anyone receiving a map to the disappeared.
3: Her hands trembled
2: as she reached for her phone.
3: We have a WhatsApp chat group, so I started to send them messages. The women, too, the ones that saw the map, we all realized that it pointed to a place where there are supposed to be a lot of remains.
2: One day in August, the mothers drove together in a white van and proceeded to follow the map. The route took them to the outskirts of the city. It had taken them two months to get permission from the authorities to go there. From the highway, they could see an isolated neighborhood filled with small, run-down houses
3: called Las Colinas de Santa Fe. I had heard of it, but I thought Colinas de Santa Fe was a housing division.
2: The women met the local authorities at a nearby convenience store. From there, they went to the edge of the neighborhood and gathered in front of a large metal cattle gate. They used bolt cutters to snap off the lock and chain, and swung the gate open. On the other side was a long dirt road, and at the end was an abandoned lot. This is where the map led to.
3: Well, here we call it a pasture because it's a piece of desert there where dunes of sand. A
2: hot, dry lake bed. There was nothing there but cactus and a few skinny cattle. But, to Griselda's surprise, there were two lagoons. And she thought immediately about the confessions detailing her son's death.
3: Ever since I walked onto the property and saw a lagoon on one side and then another lagoon nearby, I remember those words I had read. That's the first thing that came to my mind. My son has to be
1: here.
3: But actually, those first few days, they didn't find anything.
2: The state forensic experts told the women to stand to the side
4: while well, they did all the searching. They, they were picking the places where they were supposed to be digging, like, uh, randomly, so they were just pretending, basically. It was a simulation. Lucy grew furious. And I told them, look, we're spending a lot of money, actually wasting it, because we are here, and you don't let us work. She expected they would try and jeopardize the search. Because maybe there is somebody involved that they don't want anybody to be, you know, digging. And also, I know, Mexico, you don't do that. You don't trust authorities in Mexico. For five days, nothing happened, and we were there. They would have left, but we didn't. I said, no, we invested a lot of money. And that map said that there's bodies here, so we're going to search for them, whatever it takes. Finally, she threatened going to the media. And, uh, and they said, okay,
2: so have a year away. Without any high-tech equipment, the women started with a simple technique they'd learned. They drove a long metal rod into the earth, in order to
4: find what might be buried underneath. So at the top, it has like a, a bar crossing it, so that we can pull it out, because we have to hammer it in, all the way in, to into the ground, and it's like uh, maybe two meters. And once we we take it out, we smell. What's the smell? The smell like? is like decay, like a rot, like rotten body. And you literally want to find it. You want the bar to come out and smell. Because then it means that there's a body there. And that's the spot where they'd start digging.
2: At first, the rod kept coming up empty. No smell. Just dirt.
4: It was on the 8th. And exactly that same day, uh, we found the first bodies. We were digging in this place that we saw that the earth had been removed. And it was all different from the rest of the area. And we started digging and, and these lumps came out, just big lumps of uh, the, the dirt.
2: And with the lumps came the
4: smell they'd been looking for. How would
2: you describe it?
4: It's horrible. Just don't try to, no, 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 don't get the description. It's just horrible. It is nauseating and it stays in you know in your nostrils all day all day all day and the memory you never lose it and we started like uh you know with our hands we press them and they would break and the bones would come out so i was breaking it with my gloves on and then thinking gosh i would have never ever thought that i'd be touching human bones we found the, the torso with the skull, and we found 50 bones that they left just lying around, mm. because it was not too deep. In the first
2: week alone, the women found 15 bodies.
4: I was relieved. Why? Because we knew that there were bodies there, and that we had to find them. You, you could not deny the truth.
2: From that point on, Monday through Friday, Lucy and Griselda and around two dozen other women would wake up before dawn and grab a quick breakfast before driving several hours
4: to the city to meet at Las Colinas by eight. So we get together and we design how we are going to start work and exactly what we are going to do. They wore heavy work boots, sun hats, and long-sleeved cotton shirts and pants. So something light because it's so hot, but it has to cover uh, your arms and your legs. Sweating like this is, is like sometimes I felt like somebody had thrown a bucket of water about my head and then you get hungry like around noon or something. And
2: Some of the moms would pack a sack lunch and eat in the shade of the white tent they'd set up.
4: For me it was hard because it was, it was so strong the smell and uh, but, but sometimes I would eat like a cookie or something like that you know but the other moms they would they would eat no problem. They trucked in coolers of
2: water and shared a single porta potty For months, they worked through clouds of mosquitoes. And when it poured rain, they'd gather under the tent and wait for it to pass.
3: I would help them carry things, or I would hammer roads into the ground, or take water, whatever I could do. And
2: as she worked, Griselda would peer into the open graves to see if she could spot something of Pedro's. Specifically, the shirt he was wearing that day. A white
1: button-up with thin blue stripes. I would
3: always see it and stare into the graves, and I'd see parts of an arm or parts of a femur bone. There were backs tied up. I was scared, but at the same time, I wanted to know if he was here so that I could remove him from there and take him to a more dignified place.
2: Soon, it seemed everywhere they dug, they turned up more bodies. And Griselda worried she might be stepping on top of her
1: son. I would think, God,
3: I don't even want to be sitting or standing here because what if he's here? And then, one day the women
2: dug up a new grave.
3: And there was a skull, and on the top of the skull I saw a piece of clothing like white, and I, I wanted to throw myself into the grave to see if it was my son's shirt. But they just held me back. No, no, don't touch anything. The evidence will be erased. So I got very emotional. But no, it wasn't him. no, it wasn't him.
2: Per Mexican law, the women could only dig far enough until they spotted a bone or a black garbage bag, and then a state forensic expert would come in to remove the remains. They'd be stored as evidence and analyzed for DNA to see if they could be identified. Word of these discoveries being made at Las Colinas spread quickly. One evening, after a day of digging, Lucy and a group of other women were leaving.
4: Driving up the dirt road together in a large van. We were like cattle because this van didn't have seats in it. It was just in the front that it had a seat. And um, I sat in the front to tell the driver where we were going and, you know, where to drop off the, the other mothers. And so when we were coming out, there were these guys like standing at each side of the road next to the gate with uh weapons i don't know what kind yeah i don't know the names of these long weapons the automatic guns yeah exactly those and they were pointing you know like aiming at us and uh, i told the driver step on it you know like quietly because i didn't want the other moms to make a big racket so i told him I, I, I keep going just you know keep going you cannot stop here i i never saw a person change you know like his color he went yellow completely like the color from his face completely drained the men didn't follow them
2: but it was clear this work was more dangerous than they'd realized
4: but after that i told the mothers look if you don't want to come uh, i don't want to expose you to this i don't want to be you know responsible for your lives and but i'm coming back and they told me, "Oh, okay, so you want to be here by yourself?" Then <laughs> I said, "Yeah, uh, don't worry about it. I do whatever I can with the rest of the of the uh, forensics or whatever. But I don't want you guys to come back." And they said, "No, we're coming back and stop talking about it. Never mention that again." By the end of the
2: first month, the women had dug up close to seventy bodies at Las Colinas. And every day that went by, they continued to uncover more. One morning, while leaving her psychiatrist's office, Griselda felt her phone vibrate.
3: The detective says to me, ma'am, please come to the prosecutor's office at 3 this afternoon because we have an update on your case. I said, what updates could they possibly have? It's been forever.
2: Over the last four years, the authorities had done little to help Griselda, and she'd lost all trust in them. Still, she was curious to hear what they had to say. Just when she'd arranged a ride for the meeting,
3: her daughter called. Mom, where are you? I've been trying to find you, but can't. Do you have a moment? I need to talk to you, she says. I want to tell you that they found my brother. He's at the morgue. I said, what? Well, what does it mean that he's at the morgue? Well, that he's dead. One of the
2: many skulls discovered by the women at Las Colinas had matched Pedro's DNA. In fact, Pedro's had been the first to be identified.
3: In that moment, everything fell apart. It all came crashing down. I I remember that I had just seen my psychiatrist and she'd given me a quarter piece of a pill. So I took it whole. I was not doing good. I was shaking. And I started to calm down. Griselda sat on a park bench in shock, while a friend drove to find her. You know, it turns out that my son was found in grave number 59. I was there, but you couldn't see any clothing, nothing. The only thing you could see was the top of a bag. The dress shirt she'd been looking for
2: had been there all along, but had been buried in a black plastic bag. Before Pedro's remains could be handed over, authorities had to analyze every bone buried in the mass grave. Several weeks later, when they'd finally finished, Griselda received his bones in a box, but she couldn't bring
3: herself to look inside.
1: Oh, am
3: I supposed to see him in a skull or piece of bone? I wanted to remember my son the way he was. Cheerful.
1: At
2: Pedro's funeral, Griselda was stuck in a
1: daze.
3: Like as if it wasn't happening to me, I didn't even want to get close to the coffin. I said, it's not you. I don't know. I buried him. I couldn't even cry. It's like it wasn't myself. It wasn't until the next day that I realized that yes, it was
1: me. That this was happening to me. sí, era yo. De decir, bueno, bendito Dios, ya lo encontré. On the
3: one hand, I thought, okay, thank God, I finally found him. And then On the other hand, I thought, but I didn't
1: want to find him like this.
2: On the wall of her living room hangs a banner with Pedro's photo, left over from his wake. In it, he has on a suit and
3: a wide smile with his hair slicked back. I told my daughter, put the picture away. My daughter said, but I liked seeing my brother and she left it there. And sometimes I didn't want it, like it made me feel bad because I would think, how is it possible that I have to accept only being able to see you in a photo?
2: Sometimes, when she can't stand the thought,
1: Griselda goes back to the story she used to tell herself. Sometimes I,
3: I say to myself, one day I'll see you. You are, there are so many cases of sons and daughters who go to Canada, to the United States, and they stay there for years and years. So I tell myself, well, I can see you right now because you are over there. You are working. It makes life a little lighter, easier.
0: The search at Las Colinas ended after three years of digging. 300 skulls and thousands of bones were exhumed, making it the largest clandestine grave site in Latin America. No one ever found out the identity of the two men who made the map. Risalda is still a member of the group, Los Solicitos. They've just begun excavating a second mass grave site in Veracruz and have so far found close to 50 bodies. Today, there are more than 70 groups of parents across Mexico, just like Los Solicitos, searching for the remains of their missing children. The authorities do little to help. On average, two graves are uncovered each day. To learn more about Los Solicitos, the work they do, and links to their Facebook page, visit our website, snapjudgment.org. Big, big thanks to journalist Felix Marquez for his assistance in producing this story. And to actress Norma Yolanda Lopez. This piece was produced by Esther Honig. The original score for this piece was by Renzo Gorio. In fact, so many stories on Snap are scored by Renzo Gorio that we gotta give him some love. He produces under the name Hydroplane and has a new album. It's called Rockets, it's out right now a special collaborative released by Schematic and Nablina. Here's a sample. just a sample from our own amazing, irreplaceable in-house musician genius, Renzo Tudegorio. It's from his brand new album, Rockets. It's out now. It'll be available digitally on vinyl and cassette. with we'll a link to all that is Renzo at snapjudgment.org. And Snap Judgment returns, three different men claim the same identity and it is someone you may know stay tuned Back to Snap Judgment, the map to the disappeared episode. My name is Ben Washington. And next up, we're going to go looking for Jesus Christ. And we find him in the most unlikely place of all, Ypsilanti, Michigan.
5: In 1954, an article was published in Harper's Magazine. In it was a story about two women in a sanitarium who both believed they were the Virgin Mary. The patients were placed in the same ward, and after some time living together, one of the patients realized that since they couldn't both be Mary, maybe she wasn't Mary after all. She snapped out of her delusion. And shortly thereafter, she was discharged from the hospital. Milton Rokeach read this article and thought, I've got to try this myself. Rokeach was a highly respected, chain-smoking psychologist with a no-nonsense attitude. But he was also known to go the extra mile to help his students and colleagues. And this story about the two Marys, it got him thinking about how we construct our own identities. Why do we think we are who we think we are? And how could he use this information to help schizophrenics? To figure this out, in 1959, Dr. Rokeach found three schizophrenic men in Michigan who believed they were Jesus Christ. Rokeach brought them together to live at the Ypsilanti State Mental Hospital. He called them the Three Christs. Rokeach is no longer alive to tell his story, but his graduate students, the ones who helped him orchestrate this experiment are, this is Ron,
6: I'm uh, Ron Hoppy.
5: and Dick.
7: My name is Richard Bonnier.
5: Do you remember meeting the three Christs for the first time?
7: Yes, I do. I was a little apprehensive because I had no experience really with working or quote living
6: with uh, chronically ill people. We all brought into a room and the three of us met the, uh, the three of them.
5: The oldest was Clyde. He was also the farthest gone. At 70, he was pretty senile and he'd also suffered dementia from years of alcoholism. The second Christ was Joseph. He was a little younger than Clyde and used to be a writer before falling into a delusional state, believing that he was British and needed to go back to England to serve the Queen. The third Christ was the saddest case. Leon was in his 30s and was very coherent and well-spoken, but he had been raised by a severely religious schizophrenic woman and now believed that he was God and that he had magical powers. Of all the Christs, Leon was the most regal. He even looked like paintings of Jesus. Dr. Rokic uprooted these men from the environments they knew, put them all in the same ward, and insisted that they have daily meetings together to talk about being Christ. Needless to say, they did not get along. They spat and ranted and argued, each Christ fighting desperately to assert his role as king. The grad students, Ron and Dick, monitored and recorded the Three Christ behavior for 11 hours a day, every day, while Rokic came in for the group meeting once a week.
6: He would lead the discussion. He would ask questions. Something like, how do you think so-and-so would feel about that? He was trying to get them to think about their beliefs and change their beliefs. And Leon said uh, he was trying to brainwash us.
5: But somehow, amongst all the shouting...
6: They did become friends.
7: They began to share a certain familiarity with each other.
5: They sat together in the ward during their free time, lent each other rolling papers, stuck up for each other against other patients, and they even humored each other's delusions.
6: It's like when I was a child and I would see all these different Santa Clauses, right? And how did, but there was only supposed to be one Santa Claus. But then my parents resolved that by saying, well, there's one true Santa Claus, but then the, all these others that you see are just helpers. And they kind of handled that in the same way, that they were the true God or Christ and these, these others were, Leon's terms were instrumental gods.
5: It's not like any of them stopped believing that they were God. But they turned the other cheek and kept their beliefs to themselves, because they wanted to give the others a chance to believe that they were God too. Which was shocking to Rokic, because he believed that schizophrenics were unable to empathize with others. That fact wasn't shocking to Dick and Ron, the grad students. They'd always known the three Christs had feelings. They spent so much time with them, they couldn't help but get close to them. Dick's favorite Christ was Clyde.
7: But every once in a while, he'd clear up and speak of the old days on the railroad and going fishing and things like that.
6: And he was a great raconteur, very
7: warm.
5: And Ron liked Joseph the best.
6: Often he would want me to take him to a small store and he would buy a can of baked beans and open it up and eat that. And he loved that. And we would talk about books because he was a great reader. And he would pick up magazines and books and then throw them out windows when he thought people weren't looking. (laughs) Why? Uh, Why? Why any of that? I have no idea. In my belief system, it did not make sense.
5: (laughs) But Ron tried to make sense of it anyway. The grad students tried to be empathetic with the Christs in order to communicate with them. They didn't expect that befriending the mentally ill would start to blur their own realities.
7: In fact, we used to often play with letting ourselves slide into a paranoid frame of reference and just see who could last the longest before he became so anxious he had to get out. I think it was a way probably of working through the fear that we encountered at Ypsilanti. But you can make anything into a source of paranoia. I'm sitting here in a studio, which is a perfect place to be paranoid. You've got microphones and all sorts of gadgets, you know, looking at you. You can wonder about who placed them there, who really placed them there. And go on and on with this, endlessly.
5: The grad students began to resent Rokic. Here they were, questioning their sanity in an asylum, and there he was behind a desk at the university.
7: We got so angry at uh, Milt. when it was that he was getting all the gravy, and we were in here doing all the suffering. He was a smart guy, but he wasn't
5: there. And whenever Rokic did show up, he pestered the patients with such a strong line of questioning, pressuring them to admit that each of them was the one and only Christ. This just confused the patients, and they began to backslide and squabble against each other again.
7: I can only imagine the anger they must have felt towards Rokic. He always represented,
6: I think, power, a lot of power. We did believe that he was behaving too confrontational.
5: So Ron and Dick confronted him about it.
6: I guess it was our feeling of, of being protective of these guys. He's a very, was a
7: very cerebral person. He just disagreed, and that was it.
5: Ron and Dick eventually left the study to complete their programs. And that's when Rokich's tactics got even more extreme. A journalist covered the story of the three Christs in the local paper. The writer was not kind to the Christs and poked fun at their situation. Rokich brought in the article and showed it to the men. Clyde didn't understand it. Joseph didn't even realize the article was about him. He said the men in the article were nuts. Only Leon understood. He began yelling, saying that he had been betrayed and that his feelings were hurt. Leon's reaction intrigued Rokic. His next plan was to create a positive authority figure for Leon. He hired a beautiful woman, Miss Anderson, to be his next research assistant. He basically had Miss Anderson flirt with Leon, trying to get him to fall in love with her. He thought that Leon would be able to choose to leave behind his schizophrenia in order to be with her. And Leon did fall in love with her.
7: He was still reachable beneath that intense delusional system because he showed wishes to connect with people, like with the young woman research assistant. But unfortunately, it was just a tease.
5: Because Miss Anderson would never really be with Leon, and Leon wasn't stupid. He soon figured that out, that she didn't really love him, and she never would. And so he withdrew even further, saying, Truth is my friend. I have no other friends.
7: Using deception and entrapment to tap into where he had strong feelings was cruel. The recollection of it still moves me very painfully. I think so much more could have been done with him. If he had had more real psychological treatment at that point, he could have been helped.
5: The study wound up lasting two years. Afterward, Milton Rokic published the successful book the three Christs of Ypsilanti. In it, he admitted that none of the three Christs were cured of their schizophrenic delusions. However, the study did cure a fourth Christ. 20 years after the study, Milton Rokeach wrote an afterword to his book. Here's an excerpt. I must confess that I now almost regret having written and published the three Christs of Ypsilanti when I did. While I failed to cure the three Christs of their delusions, They had succeeded in curing me of mine, of my godlike delusion that I could change them by omnipotently and omnisciently arranging and rearranging their daily lives. I found out from my teachers, the three Christs, exactly in what sense they were trying to be godlike. They were striving for goodness and greatness. And such strivings, I came to understand, are really the strivings of all of us.
0: big thanks to Richard Bonnier and Ronald Hopp for their story. We owe a big debt as well to Milton Rokic's book, The Three Christ of Ypsilanti. The original sound design was by Leon Morimoto. That story was produced by Stephanie Fu. See? See, you made it here. If you want more, if you need more Snap in your life, more places, more stories, more love, more people, more joy, subscribe to the Snap Judgment podcast, hear the story behind the story, and follow Snap on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and watch them come running when you bring your milkshake to the yard with a Snap Judgment t-shirt of your very own, Snap Snap is brought to you by the team that has never once mixed up all their neighbors' mail and stuck it in different boxes. It's never crossed anyone's mind as a thing to do. Except, of course, for the producer, Mr. Mark Ristich, Nancy Lopez, Pat Masini-Miller, Anna Sussman, Renzo Gorio, Shayna Sheely, Tao Ducat, Flo Wiley, John Facile, Marissa Dodge, Regina Beriaco, Davy Kim, Bo Walsh, and David Exame. And this is not the news No way is this the news In fact, you and Tom from accounting Could make excruciating Painful small talk for 19 minutes On the Zoom call Waiting for the meeting to begin Only to realize at the 20 minute mark That it's been rescheduled For next Thursday And you would still, still Not be as far away from the news As this is But this is P R. X.